Well, let me be the first to welcome you to week three of Love Divine, the deity of Jesus and the Gospel of John. It's hard to believe we're already at week three, but uh, I'm having fun. I hope you are. And this, this week, we're going to take it a step further. Uh, but I want to ask you to do something for me. If, if you're watching this and you're watching it by yourself or if you're in one of our small groups, um, would you do me a favor and just use your iPhone and, and take a picture of the screen, take a picture of you watching it, a selfie. I know you may not take selfies, but what I want you to do is send those to me and I'm just trying to um, get an idea of what's going on out there because uh, I'm literally speaking to an empty room. And, and so it helps me tremendously to see your faces and to see you guys out there getting together and meeting. And even if you're doing this on your own, I'd love to see it. So have fun with it. Uh, send them to me, Ken Miller, Ken M at ChristChapelBC.org. And I'm going to collect those. And uh, it's just fun for me to see some faces along with this because uh, right now I'm looking at the dark. But let's get going. Well, last week we talked about this idea of the Son of God becoming flesh, uh, taking on humanity, taking on a human body so that he could live a, a sinless life, keeping perfectly the law of God and doing what you and I could never have done in order to satisfy the righteous requirements of God and then die in my place and in your place. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He revealed the glory of God, but he did so in human form. And as we move through this book, we're gonna see him revealing that glory in so many different ways. Yes, through miracles and through his words, but ultimately just through the way he handled himself, the way he lived his life. Uh, everything he did brought glory to God the Father because, not so much of what he did, but because he did it in full obedience to God. See, sometimes we get impressed with our actions or at least the actions of others. Man, I can't believe he did that. that, that that's so good. That's so great. That's so righteous. But really what we should be more concerned about is, is what we're doing, whether it's glorious, great, um, influential, worthy of praise, is it in keeping with God's will? See, that's what Jesus did. And this week, we're gonna dig into how did the Son of God in humanity, in a human body, reveal himself? How did he begin to show people who he was because it's obvious he was a man. It was obvious he had a human body. It's obvious that he had limitations just like you and I. He had to sleep, he had to eat. He had to walk everywhere he went. He didn't levitate, he didn't dematerialize and materialize somewhere else. He was just like you and I in that sense. Then how did he begin to reveal himself? I love this from chapter one, verse 49. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, this is a statement by one of the men who will eventually become one of his disciples. And we're going to see in, in the first chapter of John, a number of different statements about Jesus that are, that are compiled in this one chapter. And what's really fascinating about John is that he doesn't really, he follows a chronology. Uh, he, he's following a timeline but he places things in such a way that they support his theme, his premise. 
He leaves a lot of things out. There's a lot in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are not in John's gospel because he's interested in proving one thing, the deity of Christ. And so you're gonna hear some statements that these people make about him that seem to be all over the map, but they begin to reveal who he is to you and I. We see in verse 33 of chapter one, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is John the Baptist speaking to those in his, his surrounding, his audience. And he says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. We looked at this verse last week. So here's John the Baptist and he clearly states that this, this man, Jesus, the son of Joseph and, and Mary from Nazareth is the son of God. So that's one of the statements we hear. And then just a few verses later says the next day, John, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, his followers. This is John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus and he walked by and he said, as he walked by and he said, behold the lamb of God. He's the son of God. But now he says, He's the Lamb of God. Again, I don't think John always understood, John the Baptist fully understood what he said. I think this was given to him by the Holy Spirit. But he's speaking truth about who Jesus is. What is his identity? Remember, this is the early stages of Jesus' ministry because he's been baptized and he's beginning his earthly ministry somewhere around the age of 30 and, and he's being unveiled to the public for the first time. So it goes on in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, who is Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. So he's the son of God, he's the lamb of God, and now he's the Messiah from the lips of Andrew. Now, why did Andrew say this? He, he had no real way of knowing this, but it, but it reveals that there's something going on. There, there's a um, atmosphere taking place around Jesus that people are begin, beginning to be enamored with who he is and who he might be. And there's a lot of speculation going on. But here Simon says, or Andrew says to Simon, his brother, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He goes up to the north. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now he's saying two things here. He's revealing that he knows who this guy is. He's Jesus, he's from Nazareth, and he's the son of Joseph. Now he's not the literal son, he's the stepson of Joseph because Joseph was not his father. God the father is his father. But he's saying, I know he's from Nazareth and I know his name's Jesus, but he's also saying he is the one of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. He is the fulfillment of scripture. This is a reference to his fulfilling the messianic prophecy. So once again, he's saying, He's the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the Messiah. Why are these people saying these things when he's just now started and they have no real clue who he is? It's John subtly revealing that even through the words of these people who don't fully know what they're saying, 
He's identifying the identity of Jesus. Well, in verse 49, Nathanael says to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That's his response to meeting Jesus for the first time. Again, there's a lot in what he's saying that I don't think he fully grasps or gets, but he's articulating something about Jesus that he's the son of God. He's the king of Israel. Now, in that one statement, there's so much packed in because when they think about the Messiah, they're thinking about something in particular. And they have a certain paradigm built into this that they, they think of the Messiah as someone who's gonna come riding on a white horse, who's gonna be like King David, and he's going to set them free from all the oppression of the Romans, and he's gonna put them back in a place of prominence. He's gonna be their king, he's gonna lead them. And that mindset is built into the disciples as Jews that when they looked for and hoped for the Messiah, which every Jew did, that's what they were hoping for. But once again, John is putting these statements made by these different men together in order to support the premise of the entire book, that he is the son of God. He is the king of Israel. He is the Messiah. And he is Jesus from Nazareth. He's all of those things. And so, what we have here, I just want you to look at this. These are all statements about Jesus' identity just from chapter one. He's the word, he's the life, he's the light. He's the only son from the father. He's the lamb of God, he's the son of God, he's the Messiah, he's him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote and he's the king of Israel. Oh, and by the way, he's Jesus from Nazareth. All in one chapter, the very first chapter. So what's John doing here? John is setting the whole book up to prove all of these statements to be true. And I really don't believe that any of these men, be it Andrew, be it Philip, be it Nathaniel, I don't believe any of them fully grasped what they were saying, but John does. See, John's writing this book after the cross. He's writing this book after the resurrection, after the ascension, after the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he knows things that they don't know. And he's proving that the words out of their mouth, whether they understood them or not, were true. And he puts them all in chapter one. Because in chapter one, he's establishing Jesus' identity. He's the son of God. He's the son of God come in human flesh. And he is the son of God who is now going to begin to reveal himself. And he shows us in chapter one through the lips of John the Baptist, through the testimonies of these other men, that this is Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. And he's gonna take the rest of the book to unpack that. But there's confusion as you, as you see all these statements. And I think there's even confusion in the minds of the men who are saying them, that they're not really sure what they're saying. They're not sure what they believe. Because is Jesus a prophet? And this is gonna come up later in the book. Is he a king? Well, they seem to think he may be one. At least Nathaniel did. Is he the Messiah? Well, Andrew seemed to believe he was. Or is he just this rabbi from Nazareth? And all of these questions are gonna come up all along the way in the life of Jesus. And different people are gonna have different answers to those questions. Some will say, yes, he was. Some will say, no, he's not. The religious leaders are gonna repeatedly say, he's none of the above. 
He's not a prophet. He's not a king. He's not the Messiah. And he may be a rabbi from Nazareth, but he's a blasphemer, a drunkard, and he hangs out with sinners. And he's probably in league with Satan. See, all of this is somewhat confusing, but John is going to clear up the confusion and he begins so in chapter two. And he begins to prove the identity of Jesus. Well, how does he do it? Well, he's gonna take us to an event, a very important event. And he's going to reveal this guy named Jesus of Nazareth who begins to do some pretty important things. And why is that important? Because he is God in human flesh. And John said in chapter one, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one, speaking of Jesus, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. They're, they're companions. They're unified. They're one. He, Jesus, has revealed God to us. Well, how? How did he do that? How did he reveal God to us? That's what the rest of the book is gonna be about. And it's most specifically what chapters two through nine are going to be about, or two through 10. John's gonna show us, how did Jesus reveal himself? How did he reveal God through himself, through his words, through his actions? And how did he prove his identity as the son of God? See, so much of what we miss is that everything Jesus did wasn't to impress people. He wasn't doing parlor tricks. He was revealing himself as the son of God in order to bring glory to God. That was his purpose. That was his mission. And to keep the will of God. But how did he do that? Well, in chapter two, John gives us a glimpse into the very first miracle that Jesus performs. And it's interestingly enough, it's at a wedding. And you're probably familiar with the story. We're, we're, we're gonna not spend a whole lot of time on it, but it says on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now Galilee's in the north. And you're gonna see that there's this, this contrast in Jesus' life where he spends part of his time in the south, in Jerusalem, the area around Jerusalem. And then he spends a whole lot of time in the north in Galilee around cities like Capernaum and Bethsaida and Cana. But in this case, he goes to this wedding at Cana and the mother, his mother, Jesus' mother is there and he's got his disciples with him. And they've been invited probably because of who his mother is. It's probably a, a, either a family friend or a family member who's getting married. And, and something interesting is gonna happen. Now we gotta establish the fact that he's up in the north, he's around the Sea of Galilee and he's at this city called Cana. And it's, a, for whatever reason, it's the first place he's going to reveal himself through a miracle. He's going to show the kind of power that he has. He doesn't do it in Jerusalem. Now that's interesting because Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. Jerusalem was where the temple was. Jerusalem was where all of the religious leaders hung out and had their power and influence. Why didn't he do it there? Well, that's gonna become more clear as we go through the book that that really wasn't the place where he was going to reveal himself in the greatest way until the end. So when he chooses to do his first miracle, it's not in the capital city. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in the place where David had his throne and Solomon had his throne. No, it's in Cana. 
and it's at this wedding. And something happens. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus came to him and she said, they have no wine. Now there's so much speculation as to what's going on here. Uh, is Mary trying to get Jesus to do a miracle? Is Mary trying to push him into exposing himself as the son of God? Now she knew who he was. She was told before he was born that he, she would give birth to the savior of the world. But we really don't know what's going on in Mary's mind. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time speculating because I don't think that's the point of the story. She just simply turns to him and says, they have no water. And then listen to what he says to her. Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, some see this as sarcasm. Some see it as disrespectful that he's kind of reading his mother the riot act and saying, you know, hey, hey, woman, get behind me. You don't know what you're talking about. But literally what he means is this, this idea of the, his hour, my hour, is repeated throughout the Gospel of John. And, and it's, it's something that refers to a, a specific point in time. And it really has to do with his destiny, the purpose for his coming. He says, my time, my hour has not yet come. Another way of saying it is, this is neither the time nor the place, mom. This isn't the place and it's not the time where I'm going to reveal who I really am. So he's making a statement, not a, a harsh statement, not even a sarcastic statement. He's just simply saying, I'm here for a different reason. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, didn't fully comprehend everything the angel told her. And so he says, mom, listen, I love you, but this is not my hour. This is not the time. And, and that phrase, his hour, as I said, is used throughout the book in chapter 13. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, this is many chapters later when he realizes the time has come for him to go to the cross, to give his life, to die on behalf of sinful men and women, to depart out of this world of the Father. See, he never lost sight, even at the very beginning of his ministry, he never lost sight of the assignment given to him by his father. He always had his eye on the prize. He always knew what God had called him to do and he wasn't gonna get distracted. John 17, one says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. This is in the garden and this is his high priestly prayer right before he was betrayed and before his trials, his death and his burial. See, he, he always kept focused on the end. He wasn't gonna get distracted by a wedding. He wasn't gonna get distracted by other things that were happening around him. He kept his eye on why he had come, the hour, the, the mission at hand. And at this early stage in his ministry, the very first miracle he's gonna do is at this wedding. And it, it paints this picture. Here's a festival, here's a feast, here's a celebration of life and it's under the shadow of the cross. Even in Jesus' mind at that wonderful celebration as two people come together in, in a, a Jewish wedding festival was, it was an incredible thing. It could go on for days. And yet Jesus is living under the shadow of the cross it hung over his head, his entire ministry, and it looms large in his life. It looms large in the Gospel of John. It's the focal point of his entire book, the cross. And all these stories, all these discourses, these 
sermons that Jesus gave are all given and all done under the shadow of the cross because the cross is the whole reason he came. It's the whole reason he took on human flesh. We looked at it last week so that he could be crushed, so that he could be pierced, so that he could suffer in our place. So the cross looms large, even at this wedding feast and everything else pales in comparison and is subordinate to it. So what happens? Well, Jesus turns and he, he obviously responds. He's, he's letting her know that I've got my eye on something else, but, but I'm gonna step into this. He says, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's a lot of water. And then look at what he does. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, the, the wedding coordinator, so to speak. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did, <coughs> excuse me, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. In other words, when they get sloshed, then you see them serving the cheap stuff and they don't even notice it. But you've done something different. You've served the best wine last. You've kept the good wine until now. Now, again, we could spend a lot of time trying to figure out what, what all's built into this and what is it saying, but that's really not the point of the passage. It's Jesus revealing himself in an incredible way at this feast, this festival, this celebration as these two people come together in marriage and he does something that's out of this world. It's out of the ordinary. And, and John says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee. It's the first miracle he ever did. And then he says, and he manifested his glory. See, that's the point. It's not the fact that the good wine came last. It's not the fact that the celebration could go on and the people got even drunker than they already were. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is he manifested his glory. Well, what does that mean? Why is that important? Well, that word glory is, is huge in the scriptures. It's the word doxa in the Greek and it means his magnificence. He revealed his magnificence, his excellence, his majesty. In other words, he revealed his godliness. When he did that miracle, he, he wasn't doing a parlor trick. He was revealing his godliness, his glory, his majesty, his excellence. He did what was physically impossible. It was supernatural. He turned ordinary water into extraordinary wine. Remember the master of the, the wedding feast said, this is good stuff. You've saved the best for last. Jesus didn't make cheap wine, he made excellent wine. He performed a miracle that got everybody's attention. But it's nothing for the creator God to do something like this. Remember chapter one, verse one, the word was with God, the word was God, and all things were created by him. Everything that has been made has been created by him. This was nothing for him to turn water into wine. He could have turned rocks into bread for that matter. 
But he did this miracle and, and it continued that celebration of life. But it's all under the shadow of the cross because Jesus from this moment forward is moving towards the cross. The Gospel of John, the whole book is moving towards the cross. And everything that happens from this miracle to the end of the book is going to take us to the cross and point to the cross, but it's to reveal his glory. See in verse 14 of chapter one, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It tinted among us, it took on a body, a human body, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. That miracle revealed his glory. Well, who did it reveal it to? Well, yes, the wedding feast, the word got out. I'm sure those servants didn't keep their mouths shut for long. And they began to tell everybody, you're not gonna believe this, but he took water and turned it into wine. That wine you were drinking, it, it used to be water. I poured it in there myself. I filled the jug. But it was also done for those men who were beginning to follow him, who, who were beginning to seek Jesus and to question whether, is he the Messiah? Is he the son of God? Is he the savior we've been waiting for? but it was all eventually to reveal the glory given to him by God the Father. See, if you're reading the devotionary that I've written, here's one of the things I said about this, this miracle. The miracle in Cana would be the first of many he would perform in order to display his glory. The glory of the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh who came to bring light and life to those mired in darkness and marked by death. Something new was happening. See, this is the first miracle and it's the beginning of many. The Messiah had come and the next three years were going to be filled with further evidence of his glory. And that's one of the things I want you to look for as we move through this book is look for his glory. Look for how he's revealing himself through his words, through his actions. How does he reveal his magnificence, his excellence, his godliness? Because he does it in each and every one of the things he says and does. Well, after this, it just simply says he went from there down to Capernaum. And when you read through the scriptures, one of the things that's interesting is how they designate directions. Uh, he, he goes from Cana to Capernaum and it says down because it's, it's according to height. Cana is higher than Capernaum, so you're going down. Uh, later on, it'll say he's going to Jerusalem and he goes up because it's at a higher elevation, even though he's going south. So it's, it's interesting how they designated these places. But it says he went down to Capernaum. And this is after his disciples expressed belief. They, they saw him do something. They saw him perform a miracle and they believed. Now this word believe is all throughout the Gospel of John and, and I encourage you, if you're prone to do this, circle every time you see the word believe or belief in every single chapter of this book and, and you'll be amazed at how often it's there because it's a, a key element to the book. The belief, the belief of men and women in Jesus Christ. But it says they, this disciples believed him. Well, what did they believe? In John's gospel, this word is somewhat generic in the sense that it, it's, we're used to hearing the word believe and we think, well, they believed in Jesus as their personal savior and therefore they were saved and they're gonna spend eternity with him in heaven. But in John's gospel, he used it pretty loosely because there are times when people believed and then they walked away. So it wasn't saving belief, 
necessarily, but it was a cognitive belief that, man, I just saw somebody do something pretty incredible and I believe in him. Not sure what I believe, but I believe he's pretty significant. That's kind of what's going on here. And what we're gonna see is his disciples were going to grow in their faith. They were gonna transition in their faith over time. And it was gonna take three years for it to happen. And even though they said some pretty significant things at the very early stages, their faith was really going to increase in depth and significance as they saw and heard Jesus all along the way. You see, what I, what I think about is that when I was a kid, uh, we used to get decoder rings uh, in cereal boxes and they helped you solve uh, mysteries. And, 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 and really you and I, because we have the scriptures and we live on this side of the cross, it's almost like we got a decoder ring and we know what's going on when they don't. We know the secret. See, John's writing post-cross and John's writing because he's on the other side of the resurrection and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he knows how the story ends and he also knows how the story turns out. But these poor disciples who are following Jesus don't. They just see him do an incredible miracle and they believe. And then they follow him down to Capernaum and his mother and his brothers, his stepbrothers go with him. And it says that they were there for a few days. And after that, it's time for the Passover and the Passover is gonna loom large in the gospel of John. And Jesus is gonna to go to Jerusalem many times to celebrate Passover. And here in this case, in chapter two, he makes a trip to Jerusalem. Once again, it says he goes down because he starts out in the north in Galilee at Capernaum and he's gonna travel all the way down to the south to Jerusalem. And it says, and he went up to Jerusalem. Why? Because it's at a higher elevation. So here in chapter two, verse 14, it says, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. This picture of the temple is gonna begin to clarify for us because every time he goes to Jerusalem, something's gonna happen at the temple. Here, we're gonna see him cleanse the temple. We're gonna see him teach in the temple. We're gonna see him be confronted by the religious leaders in the temple. And you're gonna see, again, a contrast made between Jesus Christ, who's taken on this human body, this tent, and dwelling in it, and bringing glory to God the Father through it, and the temple where the Shekinah glory of God was supposed to dwell. So what happens here? He goes to the temple and he finds this chaos going on. They're selling animals, they're, they're changing money and he gets upset and he makes a whip of cords and he drives them all out of what? The temple. He, he's infuriated because what's going on is that the religious leaders have turned the temple of God into a marketplace and they are selling stuff and they're taking advantage of all the pilgrims who've come into town and they're selling sacrificial animals. And if you brought in a sacrificial animal, you would have to bring it to the priest and they would have to declare whether it was pure or not, unblemished or not. And if it wasn't, they would confiscate it and sell you another lamb. Now, what they were doing is they would take your blemished lamb and they would bring it around the back and then they would turn around and sell it to another pilgrim at a very high price. And they would exchange money because all of your offerings had to be in temple coinage and they were marking it up. It was a, it was a system of graft and greed and it was all taking place in the temple of God. And Jesus, the son of God is not real happy with this. 
And it says, he poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, get out. He threw them out. And what happens because of this? Keep in mind, this is Jesus Christ, a rabbi from Nazareth, who's walked into Jerusalem, into the temple grounds, and he's raised a ruckus. And the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest and the, <coughs> all the priests come to him and say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're basically saying, what right do you have to do what you just did? Who gives you the authority to do this, you rabbi from Nazareth? We don't even know who you are. They're questioning his right to do what he just did. And Jesus answers them in a really interesting way. Uh, what I love about Jesus is, is that he spoke cryptically. He, he, people would say something or ask him something and he would respond in a way that left them kind of scratching their heads going, what, what, what did he just say? Here, listen to what he says. Why are you doing these things? Show us a sign that proves that you have a right to do these things. And he goes, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, what do you think they heard him just say? They heard him say, I'm gonna destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. So now, not only do you think he's nuts because he came in here and did what he did, but now he thinks he's gonna tear down their temple, the temple of God, the building they revered more than anything, and then he's gonna rebuild it in three days. See, there's this contrast going on that they don't get. Jesus is saying something about himself and they respond and they say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in just three days? Are you gonna tear it down and raise it up? Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Who do you think you are? And this begins to build in their case a, a, a hatred for this man named Jesus because he is disrupting their way of life. These are the religious leaders of Israel. They're the elite spiritual leaders and he is rocking their world and they don't like it. And this certainly didn't help. But John clarifies in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see again, this emphasis on the temple. They're thinking earthly temple. They're thinking a temple made out of stones. He's talking about his body because his body was now going to replace the temple as the place of sacrifice. No longer would people go to the temple and sacrifice animals to receive temporary forgiveness of sin. He was going to go to the cross and offer his body as the final sacrifice. And he would be the means through which people were made right with God. See, everything's getting turned on its ear. He came to rock the world in a major way. The temple now was his body. Colossians 2, 9 says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. God was not living in the Holy of Holies anymore. God had evacuated the temple years and years before when it was destroyed initially by the Babylonians. And now Jesus has come in a human body, in a human tent, and God dwells in him. And he was now the means by which people were made right with God. And it says as a result of this, the disciples believed, but when did they believe? See, John adds something significant here. It says, when therefore he, Jesus, was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed. What did they believe? They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
What's fascinating is that once Jesus died and was buried, rose again and ascended on high and the Holy Spirit came, it's like the disciples had a case of deja vu. Suddenly they were thinking about stuff that they had heard and that they had seen and the Holy Spirit was helping them understand for the first time what it meant. And it rocked their world. It's the reason John was writing this gospel because he was now fully aware of everything that Jesus said and what it meant and the significance of it. Well, it goes on and says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. There you see it again, that idea of belief. What kind of belief? Well, they're enamored, they're curious. They, they see him do things. They, they hear him say things that they can't explain and they begin to believe in him in some form or fashion. But it's not necessarily saving faith as we'll see because they're seeing him do signs. They're seeing him do miracles. They're hearing words come out of his mouth that they've never heard anybody else ever speak. But it says Jesus in his part did not entrust himself to them. This is a really fascinating point in the passage. And it reveals something about what's going on between these people who are, quote, believing in Jesus and what Jesus knew about their belief. You know, when you read the Gospels, you can sometimes think that, man, this guy's got a following. This guy, people are enamored with him. They're, they're following him in crowds and it, he's, this is working. And the disciples saw that and they really did believe he was about to establish his kingdom on earth. That's why two of them came to him and said, hey, when you set up your kingdom here on earth, can we sit in your right and your left? Happened to be James and John who wrote this gospel. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't understand what I'm about to suffer. You don't have the full picture yet. And so this idea that John states that they believe, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself. He didn't give himself over to them because he knew what was in their hearts. Later on, we're gonna see that Jesus knew that they would try to make him their king. Jesus knew that they had ulterior motives, that they were wanting something out of the, this that had nothing to do with the cross. See, in, in the Jews' mindset, the cross did not exist. The idea of a surf, suffering servant was not part of their messianic concept. Their idea of the Messiah was a conquering king. So here's Jesus saying, I don't trust these people and I'm not gonna entrust myself to these people. And he says, he needed no one to bear witness about man. He didn't need anybody to tell him what was going on because he already knew. See, as the son of God, he knew the hearts of men and he himself knew what was in man. He knew what was going on. He knew most of these people would abandon him and leave him that they really weren't expressing belief in his name. See, when Nathaniel and, and was told by Philip about Jesus, here's what he said. We have found him whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. There's this, again, confusion on the part of the disciples that they really weren't sure who this guy was. He's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. They, they were all over the map in terms of what they thought they knew and what they thought they believed. And when they said, we believe him to be Jesus, the Messiah, they had something in their head. They had a thought in mind that didn't gel with what Jesus was thinking. 
See, Jesus' names, name literally means Jehovah is salvation, but it was a common name among the Jews. But it was given to him by God and it's a picture of what he had come to do. But did the disciples fully comprehend that? No. See, they thought he might be the Messiah they had been hoping for. They thought he might be the savior they longed for, but they were looking for a particular Messiah and a particular kind of savior. And what Jesus had in mind was clearly different. See, they had an incomplete view of the Messiah. Every Jew did. And they had painted in their minds and in their pictures and over the centuries their hopes had built and they had this longing for a particular kind of Messiah. See, they wanted a warrior king. They wanted a king like David who was gonna ride into town with an army and rescue them. And he would wage war against the Romans who oppressed them. And he would set them free and return them to peace and prosperity and prominence in that neck of the woods. That's what they were expecting. And so when they looked at Jesus and saw the miracles and watched him do what he did and speak with such authority, they, they thought maybe this is him. And they began to believe, but it, it was a belief that was somewhat misplaced misguided and misinformed. And so what Jesus is gonna do over time is reveal who he is. He's gonna reveal his true mission. And over three years, he's going to slowly let these men know, here's why I've come. Here's who I am, my true identity, and here's what I've come to do. And it's not gonna fit with what they have in mind. So, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has taken on human flesh and now he's beginning to reveal himself. And you're gonna see as we move through these next chapters that people are going to begin to wrestle with, who is he? Is he the Messiah? Is he gonna save us from the Romans? Is he going to set up his kingdom? Are we gonna be able to sit in his right and his left? Or is he gonna put us in positions of prominence? Are we gonna dominate this area of the world once again? Is it gonna be the glory days of David? And what they're gonna find out is that the further he moves along in his mission under the shadow of the cross, they're gonna to begin to understand that he came to do something different than what they thought and even what they had hoped. So here's your thoughts for this, this week. What are some ways in which modern day Christians exhibit an incomplete understanding of who, who Jesus is, the Messiah? What are some false expectations you and I have of him? And we have them. And I really want you to think about this one. How do we have a false idea of Jesus? And I'll give you a hint. For some of us, it's that when we were saved, we were told our life's gonna get completely better. Our marriage is gonna improve. We're gonna have no problems. It's gonna be joy, joy, joy all the time and then it doesn't happen and we get disappointed. And he doesn't end up being what we thought we wanted. And it's what leads some people to walk away. Secondly, John's going to regularly place Jesus in the vicinity of the temple in Jerusalem. What similarities and differences do you see between the role of the temple in Jesus' day and that of Jesus? And in what ways does he replace the temple? How is he the new temple? And you're gonna to have to really wrestle with what was the purpose of the temple? Why did people go to the temple? And how did he replace that? And finally, since Jesus is no longer on earth, how does he choose to reveal his glory today? And I want you to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12 for a little bit of help. See, he's not here anymore. 
But how is God getting glory today? And again, I'll give you a hint. It's through us. It's through you. It's through me. Just as he brought glory to the Father, so do we. As we live in obedience to his commands and to bring him glory. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this lesson. Thank you for this incredible book. I thank you for this opportunity to record this lesson and make it available. And I pray that more and more men would be watching it and sharing it with others. And that Father, our, our little band of brothers would grow, even though we can't meet together physically, that we would get together in small groups and online and virtually. And however we could do it, Father, may we continue to encourage one another in the word of God and have faith in the Son of God who died in our place so that we might be made right with God. We love you and we give you the rest of this week and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. And I'll see you guys next week for lesson four.